Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 229. Hello and welcome to the two-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years podcast. I am so excited for today's guest, but before I jump into that, I want to thank Cram Fighter for being a sponsor here at the Pre-Med Years. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, you heard me talk a little bit about Cram Fighter and what they are and what they aren't. And Cram Fighter is there for you as you begin your MCAT prep to set a schedule specifically for you based on your timeline and your needs, and more specifically, based on the materials that you want to study from. Stay tuned till the middle of the episode. I'll have a little bit more to talk about them. All right. So our guest today is a guest that this this type of story is why I set out to create the Pre-Med Years podcast. And originally, we were called the Medical School Headquarters podcast. I wanted stories like Renee's of, of hardship and triumph and overcoming the odds and as a 53-year-old applicant to medical school, a re-applicant to medical school, and needing to take the MCAT many times, as you'll hear, she overcame and is now a medical student. So without further ado, let's say hello to Renee. Renee, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dr. Ron. Tell me, when did you, actually, let's, let's switch this question around a little bit. At what age did you finally realize you wanted to be a doctor? Well, that started really young for me because um, at some point during my middle school and high school years, I was the one that was always signing up for the science fair. And I had a a very close friend that also would would join me when we would come up with all these experiments and different things and ways to, to make things work in the science world. And So I took a few courses in high school. Now, mind you, this was in the 1970s. I went to high school because I was born in the 60s. 
And um, I took anatomy, physiology, those kind of things. And I thought, I really like this content. Um, so I, another thing that really kind of made me think, I really think medicine might be it, is uh, my grandfather lived right beside us. And he had diabetes, was on insulin. It was back in the day when uh, you really didn't go to the doctor for emergencies. But one time, um, my grandmother had given him like double the dose of insulin. And so it was kind of an emergent situation to keep him from having really, really low blood sugars. So we call the physician and now I'm a teenager at this point and asked what we should do. Well, normally in today's world, you would have took him to the hospital and they would have given, you know, some glucose, but our instructions were by phone. And, you know, these were doctors that still made house calls. So, um, it, it really kind of was in a world of, you know, he had a chronic illness and, we were always there to help um, manage his chronic illness. So that was always interesting to me. So I think early on, I had a love for taking care of people. But that wasn't the path that you took. You went into nursing. Now, yeah. talk, talk about the, the reasons behind that, and then, and then we'll dive in some more with that. Okay. Um, I, I get this question a lot, and um, people say, well, why didn't you do it when you were young? Because I'm 54 now. And uh, the answer is I was raised in a rural community. There were no female physicians in our whole county. Um, I just knew that I wanted to do, I wanted to be a doctor. But when I got to the age of 18 and I was trying to figure out where am I going to go to college, where am I going to sign up, um, in having the discussion with my father who was ultimately going to be, be supporting me for that education. He said, well, let's think about this. He said, we have a local college down the road, university called Murray State University down in Kentucky. And he said, you know, it's relatively a good idea if you be a nurse because, you know, me being a female and I had been exposed to nurses pretty much my whole life because I'd had asthma and different things. So I had seen nurses. I knew a little bit about what they did. But it was pretty much suggested to me that that was pretty much the only option because I also had an engagement ring on my finger and wanted to get married at age 19. Again, this is a rural community. That's just what you did. Uh, married my high school sweetheart. We've still been together 35 years later. He's very supportive of me. Um, so going right into nursing, I remember at Murray State um, registering on the last day that you had to register before the semester started, you know, the following day. And I really just told the lady, you know, I said, I'm signing up for nursing classes. It's not really what I want to do. I would love to do pre-med. And they said, well, or do you want to do it or not? And I said, well, I guess, I guess I'll be a nurse, you know. So I committed to it at that point and knew that once we got married, you know, I was on my own, literally. So um, it was one of those, you jump into it. You, you you dive in head first and you think, okay, I'm going to make the best of this situation. And, and I did. I, one of my goals was to make all A's so that I'd get scholarships and be able to pay for my tuition. Because, again, you know, here I am at 19. My, my dad's not really thrilled about me getting married that early, but I wanted to make it work. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do the best I can. So as a result, I ended up with really, really good grades in nursing school. So that was to my advantage for later once I did get into med school. Yeah. It's it's interesting you mentioned 
obviously the the time that you grew up the the people around you with with not having female physicians around you and in the 60s and 70s the the percentage of female physicians was a lot lower than it is now and it, it's funny to fast forward to this day and age and all I'll have a guest on who's a, a Latina female or a male and, or, or an African-American male or female. And, and they kind of have that same story right now because they don't see physicians that look like them or speak like them. And, and they're running into those same problems of, well, I don't, I don't see a, an African-American male physician out there. So I guess I can't be a doctor because there are none out there. So it's it's interesting how that story is still playing out today, just in a, a different way. Yes, it is. Um, and kind of looking back, as, as you said, uh, I actually lived in a county, a small city called Hardin, Kentucky. And that was the county that did not have the female physicians. But once I started working as a nurse, I started seeing, you know, one, two, three female physicians trickling in. But they had trickled in from the big cities. We were from the western part of Kentucky, which is rural, versus Louisville, Lexington. Those were the big hubs in Kentucky. So I think, you know, just where you were located at that time. I graduated high school in 1981. So if you were not able um, or had the support to move to one of the big cities, then you weren't going to go to medical school. I think that was one of the reasons that my father did not encourage it. Because he knew that once I moved at the age of 18 to Louisville or Lexington or, you know, perhaps Nashville in a different city, that maybe I wouldn't be back. So that whole culture is totally different now, I think, because um, being 54, I've had two children that have been empty nesters and one of them lives in Kentucky and I live in Texas. So it's a different world now. Yeah. So you... You go on, you have, it sounds like, a successful career as a student uh, studying nursing, and you go on to be a nurse, and looking at your resume, you've had a very successful career as a nurse, but now you're in medical school. Why? We, we heard the story about why you didn't go into nursing originally, but at the age of 54 now, why didn't you try to become a physician earlier? Um, after, after about 10 years of being a nurse, um, I wanted to advance. And so at that time, my kids were pretty young and, um, I was encouraged to go to nurse practitioner school. So that was going to be the, the next closest thing to being a physician. So I did that. It was like 15 months becoming a nurse practitioner. Um, it really was not in the area that I wanted it to be. It was family nurse practitioner. I really wanted to do something in obstetrics, but again, not wanting to move because my family was already rooted in that community, I was, you know, limited in what my choices were. So I did that. And then 10 years later, um, I got into academia. And so um, I was pretty much encouraged to, to pursue my PhD. So each step that I took was pretty much to either have insurance for my family, pay the bills, uh, be there for my family, have a job that allowed me to do that. So as I grew as a parent, a mother, you know, a wife, um, then pretty much my career decisions were all based on that. 
they really didn't have a lot to do with what did I want to do. They were more or less what could make things better for the family. Did you do you remember ever having those conversations with your husband or with your kids about, you know, I'd, I'd really like to be a doctor, but I, I know we need to live here. I, I need to provide. Or, or did you just Absolutely. have that conversation in your own head? Absolutely, we did. No, it was it was uh, absolutely my husband and I talked about it from I was 15 when I met him <laughs> and we talked about it from the age of 15 on till now. And he knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, my kids uh, grew up knowing that I was a nurse and and that um, I, you know, I was a busy person. But a lot of times they grew up saying, we always thought you wanted to be a doctor. You've mentioned that before. Why didn't you do it? So I would share with them some of the barriers for why I never got there. Uh, but it was my son, who's now 30, uh, was the one who encouraged me when we were down in Corpus Christi. I was teaching as a professor down there. And he said, hey, mom, I've got a great idea. Why don't you sign up for classes? We'll take um, organic chemistry or physics or something like that that are prereqs for med school. And you can see if you're able to do that and if you would like to pursue medicine. And so I was like, wow, this is a crazy idea, of course. You know, because I'd finished my Ph.D. in 2008 and I was in academia. I thought, oh, wow, you know, here I am down in Texas. I was in Kentucky forever and I've moved my family to Texas and I didn't want anyone to think I was wishy-washy about my profession at that point. And uh, so I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take classes with you guys. And so I took one with uh, Ryan and one with Robin, and then the next semester I did the same thing. And it turned out to be a really, really good experience to take those prereq courses. And then after they were all finished, I was like, okay, well, I think it's time to apply to med school and see what happens. And uh you know, never thinking that I would actually get in. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, because you have so many other barriers that come up that you're like, you know, I'm just never going to get there, but I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. You know, you just continue and continue until you just, you know, you're there finally. Yeah. So I, I want to dive into the, the, the whole pre-med path and applying to schools. But I'm interested to know from a... Being a, a successful in academia, teaching nursing, the the financial implications of leaving a career and then going into medical school and accruing debt as a medical student and then working as a, a cheap resident or poor resident, how much did that weigh into your decision to, to pursue medicine? Well, I had talked to physicians who I knew they would know the answer to this. And, and I said, you know, that was usually something that kept me from wanting to do it. Um, I've just mentioned already that leaving my community and moving my family was one reason, but money was always the other reason. It was always like, well, I don't really have the money to do this. And if I, you know, stop my career, then we're, we're going to be living off of one income, which we had never done before. And so I guess the solution kind of came when both my kids left the house because I'm an empty nester now. I had one that got married five years ago and one that got married a month ago. And so I guess that answer came to me that, hey, it's just you and your husband now. So how much money can a person really spend? We've always been pretty um, uh, practical with our money. We, we don't um, spend it a lot. We um, don't have a lot of nice things. We just don't value that. And so it wasn't really going to be a big deal 
for us to continue to live like that. And being in debt was nothing new because like when I, each time that I would have to go back and, and get a second and a third degree, you know, I'd have to borrow money for that. And I'm still paying on my PhD now as we speak. So I didn't really see that, um, you know, going to financial aid and saying, yes, this is what I need for medical school. I didn't think that would be a big problem. And the doctors that I, t- I talked to said the same thing. They said, once you get uh, finished and you're out on your own after your residency and you're, you're making your income, you will pay that back in no time. And I was, I was told that by several physicians or I wouldn't have, have done it. So, yeah, I, I would put an asterisk on that. You can pay it back in no time if you are responsible with your money. <laughs> it's very easy to to live up to your Absolutely. income. Yeah. Okay. So you right. you take these classes with your you took these classes with your kids. It sounds like I did the prerequisites. Of course, yeah. I had a bachelor's, a master's, and a PhD. Yeah. So the filler classes like the uh, organic chemistry, the physics, the gen chem. Those um, had to be taken, and so we were down in Corpus Christi at Texas A&M where I was a professor. The reason I came to Texas was because I could get free tuition for them because I was a nurse educator. That They passed a law that said that my kids could get free tuition because I was an educator. So I was like, well, that's frugal with your money. So yeah. that's what I'm going to do. So that's why we went there. One of the reasons, I, I liked it there too, was another reason. And um, so, yeah, I was in my office, and then I would – Tell my colleagues, okay, it's time for me to go to my class in my lab, and I'll see you guys later. So I had it on my schedule, you know, and I had already talked to my boss about it. So my kids loved it because, um, you know, the kids in the class did not know that we were related, that we would (laughs) sit together. (laughs) And, uh, of course, in the lab, we would have uh, arguments, and people would think, wow, they don't get along, you know. But um, it was always kind of a competitive experiment, you know, like at home, but, you know. So, gonna so here's the biggest question. Who, here's the yeah. biggest question. Who got better grades? Uh, definitely my son. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Which he's he's now in engineering, so uh, I just didn't have that kind of mind. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was it like to to go back and take classes after so many years off of being a student yourself for for those types of classes? Obviously, PhD classes you were taking and the NP stuff, a little different. Yeah, it is a lot different. Um, it's back to that same, you know, undergrads, you know, people, large class, 200 people in the class. Some are taking it seriously, some are not. And um, it, it was thrilling to me because it was an opportunity for me to see if I could advance to the level that I was looking to advance to. Um, so I, I saw it as a challenge and just a, a new spirit. And um, it was always you know, something that I did not do with dread. I did it with excitement and um, to still to this day. I mean, when I'm um, having to do a class or if I'm studying for something big, like right now I'm studying for STEP, um, it's an exciting time for me. You know, it's just one more step to the next thing. Were there any struggles getting back into that mindset of being a, an undergrad student again? Um, the struggle, I think, for me was I obviously – don't look like everybody else. Um, nobody else in the class is 50-something years old. And so you kind of have to have a little talk with yourself and say, it's okay when the professor says, oh, you guys are all too young to remember this, and you're obviously older than the professor, so <laughs> you feel like they're just kind of leaving you out. Um, 
you know, you're going to have times like that. That that actually happened to me today. Somebody thought I was their professor, you know, and I, I'm one of them. And so, you know, the feeling like you're not going to fit in eventually goes away once you have relationships with others and you show them respect. They show you respect and you learn from each other, really. Yeah. As you as you progress through those prereqs that you had to do, talk about working as an educator and and studying for the MCAT and finding time to do that. How how did the MCAT treat you? You know, um, I had taken standardized tests before, and so I thought, okay. I'll kind of approach it like I had done before. <laughs> well, it obviously did not work out very well yeah, for me. That doesn't work. Yeah. It didn't work out. And I was trying to listen to all the others and how, you know, they had different opinions about how they wanted to do things. And I had my own opinion. And so it really didn't work out until I took a Kaplan course. And so I thought, you know, I'm finally going to do this. But the first few times that I took MCAT, which I took it five times. Um, it was a real crusher on the confidence. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that I'm such an analytical thinker at this level. And I really wanted to read every word and look at every answer choice. And most of the time, I never finished the passages because of that. I was really slow. Mm. And uh, so I had to get over that fact that, hey, your, your MCAT score is not going to be that great. But I had a lot of other things about me on my application that were really, really good. And so I had to kind of, you know, tell myself that it's okay. You know, you don't have to be the hundred percent package when you apply to med school. And I think that's what I tell people today is cultivate the things that you are really, really good at. And the things that you're maybe below average on, explain those away and, and tell why you had below average on that. Yeah. Um, and I could do that pretty much with my five times. I had to explain that in my interviews. Yeah. And I still got in. So yeah. so explain that. So five times. What uh, obviously approaching it like a standardized test. I, I think if if somebody's listening to me and has listened to this podcast, they they know that that won't work. So you you did it once, and you were like, "Whoa, okay." Now now I know that that doesn't work. What happened the other three times that? following that, that you still didn't click? Um, apparently was not ever changing anything because I was getting the same score pretty much within a couple of points each time, the first four times. Um, and I was looking at it as kind of a checklist thing, you know, uh, let's get this done. And obviously I was on the uh, tenure track, so I was pretty busy. And the study time that I put into it probably was not what I should have done. And so that very last time I was in a different city, I had moved from Corpus Christi. I'd come to uh, Brown College Station and I had new surroundings. You know, everybody's like, you know, take a Kaplan course. The statistics are if you do this, then you'll do better. And so I just kind of did that. I had a brand new mindset by the fifth time and uh, I was able to get the score that I needed to be able to be an applicant. So yeah. first four times we're, we're not there, but the fifth time it was like, okay, now, now I've done that. So let's check that off. <laughs> so, so, so the, the prior, the first four times you didn't take any sort of uh, prep course at all. Um, I did take a Princeton review prep course for, I think it was the first, maybe the second time. I think it was the first actually, but it was one of the online prep courses. Mm -hmm. 
And the Kaplan course that I took the, um, between the fourth and fifth time was on site. So I think for me, it was um, the difference because the person that was the on-site instructor, um, she kind of, you know, would stay after hours and answer questions. And it just seemed to be more of a personal experience than the other. And so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think the, with the online courses, it's very easy to, to go astray because there's somebody not there right in front of you holding you accountable. Yeah. And it it really a little lost in the mix. Yeah. It it really it really depends on the person. Some people flourish in online course and don't like it in person and and some people it's the reverse. So I'm glad the fifth time you were able to figure it out and uh and work on that. (laughs) It was not my detriment. I was not gonna let it be. So that's great. So you you finally get the score you want and you say, okay, I'm ready to apply. You have, and a, a lot of non-traditional students listening to this right now have a full life of experiences that have led them to this path. And the personal statement seems to be a huge obstacle when it comes to applying because how do you how do you squeeze your whole life into 5,300 characters. Talk about the the personal statement and how you chose to approach that. That's a really good question. Um, when I wrote my personal statement, um, I was, I was a published author. So I thought, okay, this is really no big deal. I can do this. You know, and they give the, the one or two page, whatever it is, the characters and you think, okay, yeah, I've got my, you know, intro, my three points in a poem, you know, kind of written up. But after it was brought to my attention when I interviewed, the doctor that interviewed me said, how about if you don't get in this time that you send me your personal statement and let's work on that together. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, wow. okay." she's offering, you know, she gave me her card. And so I actually got um, got on the wait list here at Texas A&M. And so I knew, you know, hey, I'm on the wait list and I had to send it back in and update it. And so I'm thinking, I've got to call her and see if we can set up a meeting time and see what she suggests. So I did that, and she was very cordial. She took me in. She said, okay, here's the main thing. Most of the people on these interview committees, they are very busy people. Most of them are physicians. They don't want a lot of words. They want to know in the first few sentences what your main highlights are. And so uh, she taught me a way to do that that was very quick and to the point. Um, and she, you know, she basically pulled out the things for me that she thought was the most important. Um, and we agreed that those were the things that we wanted to highlight. But I think uh, getting advice from the school that you're you're wanting to go to from either their admissions committee or someone that is affiliated with that is a really good idea because they'll tell you what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. So did you did you end up applying twice? I did. The first time I applied, I got no interviews. And the second time that I applied, um, that was actually when my score went up for MCAT. And so that's why I got the interview for that was because that score had went up. Okay. Interesting. How did you determine as a as a non-traditional student, how did you determine where you wanted to apply to schools? Um it had, of course, you know, my husband and I wanted to stay local in Texas. Um, 
uh, of course, like the fact that you could apply to all schools in Texas for one price. So that's basically what I did. I applied to all the schools in Texas. And uh, I did not apply to any out of state at all. And so it it was basically, you know, we're here in Texas. If we have to move a little bit, then we will. But we didn't want to uh, move drastically because we have a daughter that still lives here. She's 27. And uh, our son is is in Kentucky now. So we didn't want to go too far. Yeah. So you applied through the Texas Medical Dental uh, yes, application the, service. Did you yes. also apply to Baylor through the, the uh, AMCAS application? Um, I believe I did. Okay. I'm wanting to say that I did. Okay. So you you finally get in. Talk about the the day that you received that letter or phone call. Oh, yeah, I'll never forget it because, again, I was on the wait list. And I didn't really say this to you before. You didn't know this part, but I worked here in this college, of, in the College of Nursing. I was one of the professors in the College of Nursing. And so it's like next door to the College of Medicine. So it's kind of like, oh, you know, my colleagues are like, well, do you know how far down you are on the wait list? I'm like, no, I don't know anything. <laughs> you know, I mean, you would think like maybe you work here, people would tell you something. No, you know, it's 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 all still hush hush. You know, you don't know anything. So um, it, it's April, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm still just waiting to hear something. Still, I think at that point you lose your confidence a whole lot because you didn't match, you didn't pre match, you're still on the waiting list. And for me, that was my only interview. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, it's it's a one in a million shot that I got in, you know. So I'm thinking I'm not waiting for any phone calls. And so I get a phone call and the voice was very familiar to me. It was um, Mr. Philo Maldonado and he is the dean of admissions. And I had spoken with him a couple of times to get his input on my application. And so I knew his voice right away. So I thought when he told me who he was, I was like, this has got to be good news. And so I just dropped what I was doing. I was actually in a internet meeting with colleagues on something for, for the College of Nursing. And I just kind of dropped what I was doing and listened to his phone call. And he was like, we're happy to offer your position in the College of Medicine. And I was like, I was crying, you know. And uh, I told him, I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Maldonado, I'm crying. And uh it still brings me to tears now. And, and I told him, I said, I'm going to make you proud. He says, I know you will. And uh, so it was a really good day. It was a really good day because uh, I think it was the first day off the wait list. So I must have been pretty high on the wait list. Mm. And it made me feel like maybe the interview had made a difference because um, I know that, you know, they take the best of the best in the beginning. And then the ones on the wait list, there's something about them that, you know, makes them important for the class. And being, and I want to speak to the audience on this, being a non-traditional student, you bring something to the class that they need. Um, And I found my place in the last two years of where I fit in, Um, something that was needed for this class, what every class needs, you know, and somebody listening in might say, oh yeah, you're the mother. And I don't know that I would really call myself the mother of the group. Um, even though I have children and I'm the oldest female in the group, that it's a lot more to it than that. It's just something that, and and my colleagues are are great. They'll still say, we can't imagine the class without you, Renee. And I'm like, that makes me feel so good. I knew that this was my place, you know, this is where I was supposed to be. 
All right, so I want to tell you a little bit more about Cram Fighter and how you can save 25% off until May 7th, 2017. First of all, how to save. Pre-Med 25. Use the promo code, all capital letters, Pre-Med 25. The number's 25. Use that promo code, save 25% off. So Cram Fighter, I, I talked last week, it lets you create a MCAT study schedule based on the materials that you have, the books that you want to use, the course that you bought, the con videos that you want to watch, and creates a schedule around that, around you. And the great thing about their service is that as you go through the process and life happens and something comes up and you don't get to all of the pages that it tells you to read that day or the videos that it tells you to watch, you just go in there and say, you know what? Something happened. I wasn't able to to read these pages or watch this video. And it recalculates and readjusts your schedule as needed. It's amazing. Go check them out. Pre-Med 25 to save 25% off cramefighter.com. I love how you you put that about bringing something to the class because that's how I, I try to convey to students when I talk about the interview and and talking to to the 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 person interviewing you about why they should accept you and your your skills and and trying to relate it to those unique things about you that you can bring to the class because that's what they're trying to do they're trying to to make yes. a community of people there that are going to fit together and they obviously saw something in you that would fit with the class that they were building. Yes, and and I tell people to this day they'll you know they'll say you know what 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 do you think helped you to get in? I said that they needed that particular mm-hmm. thing about that in the class and I, I fill that role. Yeah. And so I take it seriously. It's just like you know the the 30 years of experience I have in nursing when it came time for our pre-clerkship a boot camp, we were learning skills, Foley catheters, NGs, IVs. And I'm like, okay, guys, we're going to have a clinic at my house. We're all going to stick each other. This is, <laughs> you know, off the records. So we did that Sunday, actually, from four to six. And everybody was like, oh, wow, you know, we love this. You can just teach us all these skills. And I'm like, you know, why Why would I not do that? You yeah. know? And uh, how bruised up are you? Oh, I, I was the teacher. I was off limits for that. <laughs> I had Smart. one person stuck me, but everybody else stuck each other, so it was great. That's good. So, uh, Renee, as you you went through the interview, did how many interviews did you have? I had one interview. Okay. One, yeah. It only takes one, as That's you found right. out. So, yes. during the interview, in, in, in your interview day, you probably, again, you probably stuck out like a sore thumb because you were the the odd woman out. Yes. What types of questions did you get about being a non-traditional student, about your age, about your your prior career? What what sort of questions did they challenge you with? Um, he asked me, what if you don't get in? And I think they asked that to everybody. And I've always heard the stock answer is I'm going to reapply. Yep. <laughs> of course, my answer was a little bit more detailed than that. I, I told him up front, I said, I've got plan B. My plan B is to walk back over the hall and continue to work in the college of nursing. So I said, it's a good trade-off. Either way, I win, you know. So um, we talked about that. Um, Other things that we talked about was um, what do you hope your goal is to be in this class? What what do you hope to bring? And um, at that time, that was when 
um, the fellow, and I don't recall what this doctor's name was, but was the one that was involved in the Ebola scare. Mm-hmm. And he came back to the U.S. and and he was, um, I think he was giving maybe some of of his um, blood or you know whatever it was he was doing to try to help save the ones that had Ebola that also were sick. And he was, I saw him as kind of a beacon of light for the others, um, kind of, you know, we're, we're going to be fine. We're going to do this. And I said, that's my goal right there is to be that kind of person. And it, it just, I, you know, I shared that with him. And the, the person that interviewed me, I had two people to interview me, but one of them was the dean of, of academic, uh, no, student affairs. And um, he's a father like I am. So we really bonded on that issue of, you know, what about your kids and you know how what are they going to think about all this you're going to have time for them and so it, you know I asked him I said how do you have time for yours tell me because I want to learn and uh, so I kind of took it as an opportunity for them to to guide me and to say you know I want to be that person I want to be that person that is your leader in the class because I know that age and experience is going to be a good quality to have yeah that's a, a great way to spin it. So that's awesome. So you are in the process of being a medical student now. Is it everything that you hoped and dreamed for? Absolutely. I when Every day when, when we're doing something that's challenging to me and my peers are, okay, let's do this together. Let's, here's our goals and here's what we're going to do. We do it together. And, and I, um, you know, some days I think I can't do it. I just, you know, you tell yourself, I just, you know, I'm so tired or I can't, I can't do it. But then you backtrack and you go, nah, it, you know, today's just going to be like yesterday. I got through it. And uh, some days are better than others. Some days are really, you know, pretty awful. But most days are very doable. And you just, I'm, I'd still do it with a smile on my face because, you know, I'm, I feel so fortunate to be here. I had one interview, you know, and, and I'm, I'm older. So I mean, like, you know, you just look at it, you go, was I really supposed to be here? And you just go, yeah, you were supposed to be here. <laughs> and I think about the, you know, out of 4,000 applicants, you know, all the people that didn't get in. And I think, you know, if I was not motivated every single day, then I'm really kind of slapping them in the face and saying, you know, I'm not using this opportunity for what it's worth. Mm. And I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to disrespect the people that didn't get in. What has been the hardest part for you? Uh, physical fatigue. I have, um, I hadn't, hasn't shared this with you yet, but I have a primary immunodeficiency. I have CVID, which is common variable immunodeficiency. And um, up for the last two, three years, I've been taking IV, IG, which is mm-hmm. immunoglobulins. Um, I take them every four weeks to replace what I don't make. And the nurse comes to my house and that's an all day thing. It's kind of like, I, I kind of equate it to chemotherapy because it makes you feel that bad mm. every four weeks. But um, I've been now changed to the sub-Q. So now I'm going to start administering that um, every two weeks. And I don't require anybody to do it. I can do it on my own. And um, so I think the challenge of ha- and that's not the only chronic illness I have. I think just the challenge physically of being 54 and having chronic illnesses is the hardest part for me. It's not the organization as a nurse, as a mother, I have the organizational skills down pat. Mm. Um, it's just the um, some days just feeling like, wow, this is a challenge physically. Yeah. Did you 
did you um, relay this information in your personal statements or in your applications in any way? Anything about your your health? Um, I don't recall if I did or not because at that time, I don't remember it being something that w- was something that would really would really make a difference in my admission or not. Mm-hmm. I, I speak about it now because. I feel more comfortable talking about it. I had just been diagnosed like recently, like whenever I applied. Mm. And so it wasn't something I really felt comfortable talking about. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, I wish you the best with that. And thank you for sharing your story. I have a couple more questions before we wrap up. What you've obviously lived a great life as a nurse, as a nurse practitioner, as a nurse educator, what are you hoping to get out of being a physician now? What do you What do you see the future as? My future is going to be in OB/GYN. That's what I first did as a nurse. I was an, a labor and delivery nurse, and we worked nursery, postpartum, and post surgical for women. And I always see myself in that role of an OB/GYN, but I also kind of combine it with what what it was like as a nurse, and you know, to combine those two careers philosophically in your mind is is very possible. Um, I'm very interested in centering pregnancy, which is kind of going back to this group care where it's it's more financially, um, you know, a good idea. I don't know if it's really something I'm going to end up doing, but I would like to explore it. Uh, and I certainly like the idea of exploring maternal fetal medicine because the high-risk pregnancies are something I'm also interested in. Mm-hmm. So um, we're just going to have to wait and see how things go with the residencies and um, because we start clerkships uh, very soon, like in a few weeks. And uh, so I'm going to be able to get out there and kind of see what's available. But at this point, I'm really kind of set on OBGYN. Are you concerned at all about, and I ask this because I, I get this question a lot, with your your age wanting to go into a surgical subspecialty, are you concerned, number one, for yourself um, being able to handle the rigors of a five-year residency? And number two, some of the biases that may be out there from program directors looking at you not seriously because of your age? Right. I have actually had um, my brother-in-law is an ENT plastic surgeon, and he, he posed that question to me. Um, when he heard, you know, hey, you want to get into OBGYN, have you thought about this? And he said that very same thing. Um, it is something I've thought about. And the biases that I think I will get are going to be similar to what I think the admissions committees were probably discussing when I applied to school. So, you know, obviously it's something if I did get the interview and I would talk about it, um, I think the other qualities about me are something in a, that's going to make me a stronger applicant because the residency pools, from what I understand, um, you have s- small groups of residents. You don't have really large groups. Mm-hmm. And you're going to need a variety of residents. You're not just going to need the, all the ones that look the same or all 24 years old. You're going to need people that they're, have a wide variety of experiences in order to have the best team. And so I think probably that's going to be to my advantage because I've, I've experienced some things that uh, some of the younger ones have not. Um, you know, what kind of career are you looking at? You know, I really don't want to retire. I just, I see myself working until the end. 
whereas I have seen physicians to get burned out at a young age. Um, I obviously am not going to get burned out because if, if, if I've been in nursing this long, you know, healthcare and, and being around patients, it's not going to burn me out. Yeah. Good. Okay. So as we wrap up here, what words of wisdom do you have for another non-traditional student out there that is in their 40s or 50s and, and doubting whether or not they can do it? Um, don't compare yourself to the younger ones. You're not in the same category. It's not apples and apples. And you should talk to other people like myself who have been in your shoes and who are trying to pursue things that there are barriers in the way. It's, there's, it's not going to be something that you just turn your application in and you expect all these interviews. They're not going to happen. And again, you're going you're gonna to have some bias there and you have to figure out how do I work around that bias? And, you know, am I biased? You know, I have to think about that too. Am I biased against the younger ones? Because they have some qualities that I don't have anymore. So um, those are all thoughts that you have to consider before you make that move. And also, I think the best advice I can give you is make sure that you have the support. And I'm not just talking financial here. I'm talking about emotional support because it's a daily grind. And if you have a marriage that's not that great to begin with, then I wouldn't I wouldn't chance it. Um, having the kind of relationship that I have had with my husband and my kids and, and my parents, I was 100% supported in so many ways. So I knew that 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 would be a plus for me. So that's that's what I would say. All right. Renee Ridley, medical student at Texas A&M, taking the MCAT five times, reapplying to medical school, finding those mentors, fighting that guidance, and making sure that this is what she wanted to do and getting there. So thank you, Renee, for taking the time to chat with us. I hope that you listening will find some inspiration, find some motivation from this episode, from hearing Renee as a 53-year-old applicant to medical school, as somebody who went into nursing and was very successful as a nurse educator, but had something in her gut that kept telling her that medicine was really what she wanted to do. So I hope that if you're listening to this and you're in something that you don't want to do, understand that there's still time to do what you want to do, to fulfill your dreams and be a physician. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would love for you to share this with somebody who you think needs the message that Renee has. And until next week, have a great week. We'll see you next time here at the Pre-Med Years Podcast. <laughs>